You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, so for those of you who've been here for a little while, uh, you might have noticed or be able to tell. I don't get a chance to preach very often, and it makes sense. Uh, Robbie's a fantastic preacher, right? Like when you got Tom Brady on your team, you don't put in whoever, who, who, is, who even is the back? Is it, it's that guy from Florida, Kyle Trask, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'll, 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 I'll boast to be Kyle Trask in that scenario. Uh, but uh, Robbie called me uh, earlier this week and let me know that he's going to be out of town. And so I went to go look at the lectionary to see what the gospel passage was that I was going to be preaching on today. Now, as infrequently as I get to preach, you would, and given that we do use the lectionary, which kind of exposes you to more texts than you would typically kind of, you know, when you get to pick your own texts, you might kind of use the same handful of ones and keep coming back to them. So you'd think that there would be kind of a spread, right? The odds of me getting the same texts over and over again would be pretty low. Somehow, in the handful of times that I've preached here, I've somehow preached on the transfiguration twice, like I've gotten that text twice, and I've preached on the prodigal son twice. So when Robbie called me and said, hey, Mikkel, would you, you know, preach this Sunday? I'm going to be out of town. He's in California at uh, SPS. He's presenting there. Um, I said, sure, let me go see what the text is for this week. So I'm preaching on the prodigal son for a third time uh, <laughs> today, which either, I mean, to me, I can only kind of come away with two conclusions. Either A, Robbie really doesn't like this text and he keeps going out of town whenever it comes up. Or B, there's something here that God is really trying to hammer home with me and I'm just not paying enough attention. So uh, I think it's probably the latter. Let's see if we can find out. But um, the gospel text for today is the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, in my opinion, uh, and probably because I am so familiar with it, it seems, uh, it is one of the most kind of illustrative uh, kind of um, revelatory parables, right? I feel like a lot of times uh, Jesus' parables can be kind of opaque, right? He even says that's kind of the point, right? Like he gives parables so that we don't get things too quickly, right? Like I could just tell you something that's true and you go, yeah, that makes sense. I know that already. But parables kind of make us slow down a little bit to kind of digest, to kind of mull on whatever the point is, Right? It's like when you're trying to give medicine to your dog. You kind of have to sneak the, the pill in the peanut butter, you know, and let them, let them not know it's there right away. So uh, I think this parable is really corrective for us in, in a lot of ways. Uh, a couple of those ways is that it, it kind of clears a few assumptions out of us that we might carry about how we view ourselves, about how we view God, and about how we view one another, about how we view other people. And so I kind of want to walk through that a little bit. And I'm going to read this here, and I might make a few pauses, and it is kind of a long one. So stay with me. I know that you all know this story well, but try and, try and, uh, try and, and, uh, and stay with me here. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow, meaning Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, and uh, the lectionary kind of skips over a few things here. Uh, he t Jesus tells 
three parables, kind of back to back to back here. There's the, the parable of the lost sheep, right, where someone loses a sheep but then finds them and celebrates. And then someone loses a coin and then finds it, and there's a celebration. They invite everyone over to come and celebrate. And then the story of the parable is the longer one. It's kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the main one of these three but it follows the pattern of those, right? Something is lost, something is found, and there's a celebration, right? There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. Uh, so, sorry, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to pause too much through this, uh, but just uh, it's, it's, a, it's worth noting here that to, for a son to go to his father and say, give me my inheritance, right? When do people typically get their inheritance? When, when the patriarch or the matriarch, when the, when the family, when the, the, the parents die. So for a son to go to his father and say, give me my inheritance now, is not just kind of jumping the gun a little bit. It's not just kind of, you know, speaking out of turn. It is tantamount to saying, I, I wish you were dead. I, I wish you weren't in the picture anymore so I could go ahead and live my life how I see fit, right? This is a, this is a really kind of terrible thing to say and do, right? Particularly in this ancient sensibility. This is not, this is not a light thing. I know it gets kind of treated light, but I think because it was so clearly understood that this is what was happening in this moment, like, it doesn't, like it's not explained thoroughly. So I, I think just kind of that context is a little important there. A few days later, and it says that he divided his property between them, meaning between him and his other son. A few days later, the son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my oh, father, <laughs> and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one. And put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on, and he replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. So I'd like to kind of go back through the story a little bit and kind of look at the individual characters, right? We have the three main characters. We have the, the lost son, the prodigal son. We have the father, who really is the central figure of the story. I think we kind of misname the story a little bit, right? This should be about kind of the, the compassionate father or the loving father, not the prodigal son, because he's not even really kind of the central figure of the story. And then we have this elder brother, right? This, this uh, good and obedient brother. So... Uh, if we back up to the beginning, we have to kind of remember Jesus' audience as he tells this story, right? He's having a meal, and he uh, has welcomed uh, sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees and the scribes are kind of the religious uh, you know, elite. They're very much kind of the gatekeepers of who is considered to be uh, you know, in right standing with the community and therefore with God. And who isn't? And so these sinners and tax collectors uh, are very much on the outs, right, as far as the Pharisees and the scribes are concerned. So uh, sinners and tax collectors can maybe kind of be some loaded terms for us, right? Um, a tax collector was someone who kind of, uh, in the eyes of, of the uh, kind of proper religious folk, were very much emblematic of having assimilated to Roman culture, right? So you kind of have, uh, you know, the Jewish people in, in, in Jerusalem and Israel, and you have, uh, you have um, the, the Roman occupation, right? You have the kind of the dominant culture. And people kind of fall into kind of two extremes or somewhere between two extremes. One is one where uh, you are considered very kind of culturally separate from the dominant culture, right? You, you kind of abhor and abstain from anything uh, Gentile or Gentilian. I don't know how you say that. Uh, and you kind of remain culturally religious, very kind of insular. Uh, and then on the other extreme, you have people who kind of fully assimilate into the dominant culture of the Romans. And so the tax collectors are people who not only have kind of become assimilated into Roman culture, but they're, they're ones who really have kind of flourished and benefited from it, right? They're, they're, they're part of that system. And so uh, they're considered an anathema to those who are kind of religiously pure. Does that make sense? You with me? Yeah? You here? Cool. Uh, and then you have kind of the term sinners is really just a blanket word for anyone who, for any reason, is not able to be ritually pure. So this could be as simple as anyone who works with animals, right? Uh, part of the scandal of the Christmas story is that the first people to hear the announcement of Jesus' birth were these people who were very much outside of kind of polite culture, of the polite society, right? There were these people who worked with animals, and because they worked with animals, they, they came in touch with death 
on a regular basis. And so they were ritually, they were kind of uh, religiously unpure. They weren't allowed to participate in temple worship the way that kind of people who could, uh, by virtue of their status or by virtue of their uh, livelihood, uh, be able to kind of perform the rituals that make them clean. And so uh, these are just people who are on the outside. And the people who kind of were responsible for keeping them on the outside are the Pharisees and scribes. So you kind of have these, you know, this, this enmity, enmity between the two groups. And there's no confusion to the audience that Jesus is telling this story to who's who in the story, right? Like that shouldn't have been a mystery. They should have got that kind of right away. And so the point is uh, that there was this group of people who were on the outside longing for a way to get in and being excluded and ostracized from temple worship, sometimes for reasons within their control, and sometimes for reasons that were beyond their control. And that's kind of a feature of the story if we pay attention, right? The son, the lost son that goes out, it says that he squanders his inheritance through dissolute living, but it also says there's a famine, right? It's not just our choices all the time that make us, you know, uh, on the outs. It's not just the things that we choose. Sometimes just bad things happen. Robbie talked about this a, a week or two ago, I think, where he talked about... Um, it was that other passage, I should have looked it up, <laughs> uh, with the tower that fell on the people and the people who were kind of uh, murdered in the temple while they were worshiping, uh, you know, that, that Jesus kind of makes it clear that sometimes we suffer because of our choices, but sometimes just bad things happen, right? Just life happens and, and, uh, and we suffer. And there doesn't seem to be any reason that we can kind of point our, hand at, uh, point our finger at. Uh, that's in the story here. Uh, an interesting side note, um, if you ask people, because this is such a well-known story, people uh, kind of are able to kind of recite it from memory, and someone did a study where they asked people from different parts of the world to recall the story of, of, the, par of the prodigal son, and some of them, uh, particularly people who live in countries where, uh, you know, kind of food security is not a given, Right? So people not necessarily maybe part of the Western world, but you know, people in other countries where they you don't have quite the same access that you and I might have. They seem to remember the famine, but if you ask people from kind of Westerners, people from the US and other parts of the world where food insecurity is not such an issue, we tend to not remember the famine being a part of the story, right? I think part of that is because we don't really kind of connect with the idea necessarily of having uh, you know, a food being inaccessible, but also I think because part of our, I don't know, shared religious psyche is that if someone is suffering, it's because they deserve it, right? Because that they've done something to kind of, kind of earn that suffering. This story, I think, very much kind of challenges that idea. And so the assumption that the lost son, I think, challenges for us is that, uh, and this is going to sound maybe a little rudimentary, right? This sounds like maybe a little Sunday school-ish, so bear with me here. Uh, there is nothing we can do to escape the love of God. And I know that on a kind of sentimental level, on a cerebral level, we might agree with that and say that. We might say things like that, particularly maybe when we're like telling other people about the love of God. We'll say God's love is limited, limitless. God's love is infinite. But I think if we actually interrogated ourselves on a deeper level, maybe on a more gut level, we suspect and we fear and maybe we even insist that that can't be true, that it must be otherwise, 
right? Like that's that kind of innate sensibility we have that if someone's suffering, well, they had it coming, right? They must have done something to deserve that. But despite how elementary and even cliche the sentiment is that we can do nothing to escape the love of God, uh, that our prox- we, we, we believe that our proximity, our sense of closeness to God is somehow contingent or tied to what we do or what we don't do, right? So the son kind of imagines himself, uh, even as he's kind of rehearsing the speech that he's going to say to his father when he comes back, right? He's like, okay, I've, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, and so if you could just kind of take me back in a very kind of conditional, qualified sense, right? If I could just be your slave, like maybe I could at least just, you know, kind of, you know, from a distance be closer to you. The assumptions kind of inherent in that are that God's love can be lost and that God is kind of angry and retributive and vengeful in the way that his father, who would never be able to take him back as he is, right? That's the assumption. And I think that as much as, again, we, we kind of say regularly, God's love is so great and God's love is so infinite and God's love is so endless, I think sometimes we're afraid, we fear that that might not be so, right? We fear that God's love maybe is somehow conditional, right? That we can lose it. Or when something bad happens to us, we start running the tape back and say, what did I, I did, was it that? Did I do that? Is that why I'm doing this, right? Like on a gut level, we're afraid of that. Is that just me? Is that y'all too? Okay. And so this assumption gets challenged by the next character we meet in the story, which is the father. Now, once the son has kind of decided that he's going to you know, basically manipulate his dad to taking him on as a hired hand. Uh, he sets out for home. And it's worth noting, I think, the son's uh, reasons for repenting are not um, so great, right? Like, he doesn't have, like, it's his circumstance that's driven him to this, right? And I think it's worth noting that in the story, that's fine. There's not a bad way to come back to God. There's not a wrong reason to repent. Like, even when it's just selfish, right, and we come to God, God's fine with that. That's a kind of a side note. So the father sees the son while he was still far away. And it's, it's interesting here, the way that that says. I might go back and just kind of read that one part. Um, so he rehearses this speech, right? He's got it all. He's got it down to the word. He knows exactly what he's going to say. And it says that he set off to his father. But while he was still far off, and that's, uh, I went and checked to see kind of, because I thought that was a weird way to phrase that, right? It's not, you would expect that to be, or the way that I've imagined the story to be, is, and when he drew near, the father ran to him, right? Like, that the father kind of saw him coming up down the road, and I think even in like, the felt borst Sunday school versions of it that we've seen. That's the version that we see, right? Oh, here he comes, and he sees him from far off. But it says, but while he was still far off, which in my mind, I think, thinks that the father never lost sight of the son, right? Like there's not, there wasn't a point in the story where the father looked away, that he was always watching. And it was at this moment, this kind of breaking point in the son, 
that the father sets off for him, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't until he drew near, but I don't know. I mean, it, it is that, that but is a very kind of prominent uh, conjunction there. Uh, <laughs> I have a story... Uh, I have a story about being recognized from a distance. I have kind of one of those, I guess, looks where people, I guess I look like a lot of people, or a lot of people look like me, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> I used to work for Geico, and I uh, one day was on a break, and there's kind of one part of the building where I get cell service, and it's in the elevator atrium kind of space. It's like on the outside of the building. And so I was down by the window, and I was, you know, checking my text messages and what have you, and someone on the other end of the atrium kind of walked and stopped and said, oh, hey. And I was like, hi. And he was like, uh, how's the new job going? And I was like, oh, I had just kind of started a new position there at that point, and I said, well, it's going pretty well, thanks. And he's like, good. You doing all right? And I was like, yeah. He goes, all right, and he seemed kind of put off by my, but I didn't know the person, right? He kind of seemed like taken aback that I wasn't so enthusiastically talking to him. And he went, all right, well, I'll see you later, Mark. He went and walked away. And I went, oh, oh, no, I'm, oh, but he was gone. And I, you know, felt bad. I, I you know, I felt like that guy was really disappointed by that conversation. So it was like, oh, poor Mark. As it happens, uh, a few days later, I was in the cafeteria, and I saw someone who uh, was devish, devilishly handsome uh, <laughs> and, and had bared a passing resemblance to me. And I said, hey. And he said, hi. And I went, how you doing? And he said, good. I said, how's the new job going? <laughs> he went, fine. And I was like, cool. All right, see you later, Mark. And I went on. <laughs> and he was, he looked, I mean, he looked, he must have been more confused than I was. And I felt better about that. I felt like those two people were able to have that same disappointing conversation. And I was just able to kind of make that happen to me. So it's, it's a dubious, uh, maybe the moral of that little aside is, uh, you know, wait till you get a little closer before you decide that you know somebody. But anyway, the father, while the son was still far away, uh, he, he goes and he runs to the son. And uh, it says, the father sees him and was filled with compassion. And he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. And the son sets into this, this rehearsed speech about how he sinned. Uh, which again, I guess kind of like, I don't know that it's so well rehearsed. I wonder, it makes you wonder about the sincerity of it. If, or maybe he's just hungry, you know. But before he can even kind of get a word out. The father's already kind of got a robe around him and a ring on his finger, and he brings him in. And, you know, this gives us this image of this father who is kind of uh, unendingly patient and loving and forgiving and merciful and compassionate. And, again, I think this is something that we like to talk about, and I think it's something that we... Uh, you know, assent to on a cognitive level, but it works itself out in a lot of the ways that we talk about God and the ways that we talk about the life of faith and the ways that we talk about, you know, ideas like salvation and atonement that we suspect and even on some level insist that God must not actually be that, right? Or that, or that that is kind of part of God's nature, 
but God also has this angry, retributive, vengeful, uh, kind of very just nature. And somehow God's love and mercy and God's uh, goodness and justice are at odds with one another, right? And one can win out over the other, but both can't be kind of served at the same time. That I think that tension, I feel that often in the ways that we talk about God, I, in the ways that I think about God. And so if we were telling the story, perhaps we would have a moment where the father sees the son coming from far off and maybe like stops him at a distance and says, wait, wait, wait. Someone's got to pay the price, right? Someone's got to, I need my pound of flesh, right? He might not say it that way, but he would appeal to his justice. And then maybe he'd take like one of his servants and scourge him and put him to death in his place, right? But none of that's in the story. None of that like angry retributive. The father is free to forgive because forgiveness is part and parcel with the nature of the father. The father is free to love because the father is love. That other part of it, I think is something that we would add to the story, that we would insist upon. But Jesus makes it very clear. Before the son even gets to repent, he's already forgiven. I think that's an important thing to hold on to. Again, this is the third time I've preached the sermon. I don't know how many times you've heard the sermon on the parable of the prodigal son. But I think this is an important thing to hold on to, that God's... Mercy is not contingent. That what Jesus does for us in forgiving our sins is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father. Jesus isn't doing what Jesus does on the cross. We're coming up on, on Holy Week. We're coming up on the season of Good Friday and Easter. And as we kind of prepare our hearts for that in Lent, I think it's important to remember that what Jesus does isn't to make us acceptable to God, right? Uh, we've said this a lot last year in the uh, More Christ-Like God series. This was kind of a common refrain that we said, that the cross is not what God requires from Jesus in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Jesus endures as he forgives. And that's an important thing to hold on to, that all of that violence that we would kind of require for ourselves from God isn't present in this story. And yet this is the story that Jesus tells. This is how Jesus is revealing God's nature, God's character to us. Jesus didn't come in order to change God's mind about us. He came to change our minds about God. And that's what this story is meant to do. And so finally, uh, we are introduced to the elder son. And I am, I'm going to try and wrap it up quick. Uh, the elder son in the story is interesting to me, not because he's so different from the younger son, like he's kind of set up, and I think the Pharisees would like to think they were so different from the sinners and tax collectors that they were contrasting themselves to. The elder son is interesting to me because he's so much like the younger son. His assumption, his conclusion about who his father is, is exactly the same as the younger son that the father is just and good and cannot accept the younger son as he is. The younger son thinks that, right? The younger, the younger son thinks, uh, whereas the, last, the lost son imagines that his father is exacting and retributive, and so he despairs. The elder son imagines his father is exacting and retributive, and he glories in it. 
because he feels like he's earned that love. That love can be squandered and that love can be earned and surely I've earned it. Surely I'm in because of what I've done. And yet, in the same way that the lost son has completely missed the heart of the father, the elder son has missed it all to the same for the same reasons. Do you see that? He, like his brother, assumes that his father's love can be earned and imagines that he has succeeded in doing so. But unbeknownst to himself, he has missed the heart of the father by exactly the same margin. And this ignorance leads him to see the mercy the forgiveness, the grace that the father has bestowed to his younger brother as being an affront to him, right? And he would even, like, it's interesting that he kind of, uh, let me go back to that real quick. He says, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, but when this son of yours, interesting that he doesn't say my brother, he says this son of yours, right? Because he needs that distance between them. This son of yours has come back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you have killed the fatted calf for him. Notice how the son imagines that by excluding his brother, he's somehow defending his father. Right? Like he, he's, he's kind of deluded himself into thinking that. And I think when we fall into being kind of gatekeepers of the faith, when we draw those lines where we imagine ourselves to be in and good and them to be bad and out that we imagine we're doing that in defense of God as well, right? We convince ourselves this is because God is holy and, and because we, we need to do that. I, sh I shouldn't have gone back in my notes. <laughs> and so the story concludes with this party being thrown, just like the other two parables, right? And I think the reason why Jesus kind of included this with the other two parables is because the other two parables are so easily relatable, right? You lost a sheep, you found it, you threw a party. Of course, who's going to begrudge someone celebrating that something good has happened? Why not? A coin gets lost, it's found, there's a party. Sure, you had a good windfall, you had a big, a big influx of money, sure throw a party, I'd be happy to go to that party. But then when it's this other undeserving son, well all of a sudden it gets messy, right? We wouldn't begrudge the owner of that sheep and that coin or the Pharisees and the scribes wouldn't begrudge the owner of that sheep and the coin to throw a party. But yet somehow this feels wrong, right? They hear the elder son and they say, no, yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> the younger son is inside celebrating and the elder son is outside and won't come in. And we see this kind of reversal of fortunes, right? The one who was out has been brought in. And the one who thought he was in is out and won't come in. And so this story kind of ends in a cliffhanger. And just as kind of the Pharisees and the scribes and the sinners and the tax collectors, you know, are being told the story about themselves, the story doesn't end with a conclusion. It kind of ends openly. We don't know what happens next. We see this father standing in the doorway between the one that's in and won't come out and between the one that's out and won't come in. Pulling, drawing, yearning, begging, please come together because I love you both. And you haven't squandered my love and you haven't earned my love. And yet I'm trying. Do you see the heart there? 
And Jesus, just as God, just as the father in that story is bringing these two sons together, Jesus is standing in that room and he's drawing these two groups together. Perhaps Jesus is standing here now and he's pulling us together. And all of the things, all of the categories and all of the qualifications and all of the reasons and all of the differences that separate us, God's drawing us together. And so I kind of want to end real quickly with this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we, we just got back from a trip in Israel, and one of the places we stopped was in Caesarea. And uh, I tried to, whenever we went to a place, go and look up kind of what happened there and kind of read the stories. And so I have this story from Acts chapter 10 that's really kind of stood out to me because we went to Caesarea, and I read the story, and I was like, wow, this is really kind of an image. And I'm also going to try and tie it into Lent if I can. See if I can do this. <laughs> uh, it's this story of where God appears to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and was a God-fearing man. But remember, Gentiles, you know, are part of that other outside culture. And so, as a Gentile, he was disqualified for all the reasons Gentiles would be disqualified from going into the temple and actually worshiping and actually being part of the community of God. But an angel appears to him and says, go and meet Peter and he's going and listen to everything he has to say. And so Cornelius and some people leave. And then Peter uh, has this vision, right? It says that it was about lunchtime and he has this vision. And you've heard the story. It's the vision of the sheet kind of being unrolled before him. And there's all these kind of unclean food. So, you know, I'm assuming a bacon cheeseburger is on there, right? Because they're not... But maybe, maybe there's crawfish, maybe there's, I don't know, baby back, baby back ribs, maybe there's, uh, what, too close to lunch? Am I? <laughs> uh, all right, I'll, I'll say some grosser ones. Uh, there's birds of prey, right? There's eagles and hawks and vultures, right? They're not supposed to eat that. Um, they're not supposed to eat, uh, you know, uh, rabbits and things like that, things, things of, the, the, all of these unclean animals. And Peter has this vision, and, and he hears this voice that says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And he hears a voice that says, do not declare unclean that which I have called clean. And he says this vision happens three times. And it says, uh, then lunch was ready, and Peter got up and was like, well, that was weird. And he didn't get it, right? Because I think oftentimes we don't, I don't know, when I'm hungry, sometimes I can hear and see things, and I'm just like, that's weird. <clears throat> But then he meets Cornelius. Cornelius comes to his door. And the thing we have to remember about Peter is that Peter is a zealot, right? Peter is formerly a person who violently opposed Roman rule, had this deep anti-Gentile sensibility, wanted a pure ethno-state you know, of, of the Jewish people. He wanted the Jewish people to rule themselves. He wanted the Gentiles out. And here comes a Gentile at his door. And all of a sudden, it kind of clicks to him that that vision was about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And it says at the end here, I truly understand now God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what, right is, does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the same Peter who on the day of Pentecost prophetically said that God was pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Well, did he mean all flesh or did he just mean the Jewish people? So like in the spirit, he was able to say, he was able to proclaim much the way that we're able to say God's love is infinite, but we deep down kind of feel something else maybe. 
he thinks, well, God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh, wink, wink. Not actually all flesh, but here comes a Gentile. And here comes the Gentiles, and they start speaking in tongues, and they start, you know, exercising the gifts of the spirit. And Peter goes, well, I guess now I get it, right? The point is that Peter had to get hungry enough to see that vision, to connect those dots. Peter had to have that experience. And I, I would say to you, whoever it is in your life, if it's that one person at the office or that one neighbor or that one family member, or maybe it's a group of people, or maybe it's people of a particular political party or affiliation or persuasion, whatever it is, whoever it is that you in your mind go, boy, if it wasn't for those people, blank would be so much better. My job, my life, my neighborhood, my country, the world, whoever it is that in your mind is kind of your enemy. Not only are you being sent to that person, like Peter was, to speak what it was that God has to say, but I would submit to you, it's possible and maybe even likely that God is sending them to you so that you can be stretched. That maybe it's them being sent to you that's going to bring about God's purposes in your life somehow even though we don't get it, right? We're hungry and we're confused. But maybe it can click. And maybe we can kind of enter into that, that, that ministry of reconciliation we wrote about from the epistle passage that we read. Maybe we can be the ones watching from afar. We can be the ones that are inside going out. We can be the ones that are outside coming in. We can be the ones that go and answer the door when that person who we just can't stand comes knocking at our door. And not only are we able to speak the words of God, but we can actually recognize that God is doing something in us through them as well. Amen? Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.